I love movies. Gosh, I love movies. Here we go. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the Grindhouse Podcast with Dave and, well, just Dave today. It's just me flying solo. So if you follow our social media accounts, you'll realize that we had um, a really funny show recorded for everyone on uh, Saturday. And usually I edit on Sunday and then it's available to you guys late that night or early the next day. Um, We, during that podcast, made a couple of comments about AI that apparently Skynet did not find amusing. So... We were hit with about as many technical difficulties as any one show could possibly have. There is a heat wave that is hitting Los Angeles, which caused my virtual reality headset to uh, constantly overheat. We had uh, audio issues, and then my recording program just dropped whole snippets of audio. So long and short of it is, uh, it it wasn't up to our grindhouse quality to release. And so we had planned to record today. Uh, but unfortunately, as is always the case, real life intervenes, and uh, Matt is currently working on an art project that has a deadline attached to it, so uh, he has entrusted me with the keys to the kingdom. I'm going to, I'm like Han Solo today, I'm going to attempt to entertain you guys just one-on-one for like an hour or so, maybe less, we'll see, we'll see how it goes, but um, he is also diligently trying to save that episode. Uh, so if we, by some chance, are able to resurrect it from the state that it's currently in, we will. Otherwise, uh, we will tackle that topic that we had planned for today um, next week. So since uh, it's me by myself, I thought uh, we'd start with some breaking news. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Hellraiser, which is by far one of my favorite films of all time, not even just in the genre of horror, but just as a film. It's excellent. It's uh, provocative. Uh, the effects hold up amazingly well. It, I would I would argue that in terms of films that were heavy on special effects that hold up today, it's right up there with a the thing to me in terms of films like that on a practical effects level look oftentimes much better than a lot of the um, CGI work that gets sort of has taken the place of practical effects. In fact, I just recently saw the Fright Night remake, I th- which I think came out like in 2011, perhaps. And um, I enjoyed it enough. But the one thing that that took me out of the moment was that the CGI was just pretty rough. You know, for any of you horror fanatics out there, you know that the effects are just as part of the experience. And if they're lacking then even a good story or certainly good acting can be completely torpedoed. Um, Not the case with Hellraiser. Hellraiser is excellent. And um, we talked about Hellraiser because, not just because we love the older movie, the Clive Barker-directed film, but because uh, David Bruckner of The Signal and The Ritual and uh, VHS, and who was a producer on Siren, which I was the executive producer on, is directing a Hellraiser reboot. And we, Matt and I talked about some of the different ways that they could approach it. And, you know, sort of we feel cautiously optimistic that new reboot is in good hands. Well, hot off the heels of that news, BloodyDisgusting.com wrote an article saying that Hellraiser is getting an HBO series with David Gordon Green directing and Michael Doherty writing, which is, man, David Gordon Green, 
dude brought back Halloween and I'm pretty stoked about him directing that charge. And Michael Doherty, Michael Doherty, you know, directed again, another one of my favorite films, trick or treat, um, Krampus and the much, in my opinion, highly underrated Godzilla King of the monsters. So, I mean, this is like, this is insane to, to think that not only is Hellraiser getting a, a new movie, uh, but also that it's going to get along. It's going to get the HBO treatment, the series treatment, the the Game of Thrones budgets, hopefully, to explore the the Hellraiser world, um, still centered around Pinhead and and the, I'm sure the the Levant configuration, but um, exploring the mythology. I think what my understanding is is that everything that came before, or at least if it's if I know David Gordon Green in terms of how he handled Halloween. Uh, certainly the first movie, maybe the first two movies will be canon and then they'll explore from there. Or maybe they'll pick and choose what, which parts canon and which parts not and further the mythology. So super cool. I, I, it, as of right now, it certainly seems as though they're, it's unrelated to the, to the movie, but, uh, who knows, maybe they'll do some sort of cool tie in or at least, you know, they won't be so far apart that, uh, audiences won't get confused and that they can, if you're if you're a fan of the Hellraiser series like I am, you've got a lot of cool content coming your way once uh, once production gets up and running and this whole COVID horror story ends. I also have to mention normally when we do this podcast, I'm usually enjoying some Blackheart Coffee, which is a cool independent uh, indie coffee brand. But today I had to change it up because I'm flying solo and I just might need a little bit of help. So. I got myself some Trejos Cerveza. That is my co-host on this show today. Danny is take is going to be my co-pilot on this adventure. And I thought it would be really fun to talk about something that I feel like we've touched on before, but maybe give it a little bit more attention, which is what makes a good horror movie today? And I think it's relevant because we just talked about Hellraiser coming back both as in feature form and in series form. And when we did the Hellraiser episode, we talked about some of the things that those guys could do to make that story relevant today. But I was talking with Mr. Sophia earlier today, and we were just talking about um, some of her script writing, which is excellent. And and the you know we we talked a little bit about missing slashers, right? And um, you know I think for a lot of people my age, and even I would even say like ten years younger, right? You know, young Gen Xers to older millennials, we grew up, our, our formative years getting invested in horror movies was most likely centered around the classic slashers of the late 70s and early to mid 80s, right? Movies like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street and the Halloween series, Prom Night, which was one of my earliest uh, exposures to horror. Um, the, the list goes on and on, right? Those tend to be the movies that were probably what we were first introduced to when we got into horror. And then, um, you know, as I hit my formative teenage years, and for some of you who, who maybe were coming into the age that I saw those early films at as a kid, these were the horror films that you saw as a kid and I saw as a teenager, which is like the Scream movies, right? Or like what I like to call like the meta slashers. Uh, you know, very much spearheaded by Wes Craven, uh, which he experimented in in Wes Craven's New Nightmare first before really perfecting it in the Scream series. Then you had uh, the Kevin Williamson films. Uh, well, he did Scream as well, but also I know what you did last summer and The Faculty and things of that nature. These, these for 
you know, two generations were the movies that we grew up on. They were the horror films that informed many of our sort of opinion of what makes a horror movie. And regardless of whether that has evolved over time or not, I think a lot of us hold a special place in our heart for a slasher film. So the question arose, can slasher films work in modern filmmaking? You know, can you make a good slasher today in 2020? I was giving some thought to it and I thought, well, what are, let's, let's, let's go back to the oft quoted sort of assertion of horror films, right? Which are that the best horror films, not all, but the best are the ones that hold a mirror up to the anxieties of society. Movies that tap into that primal fear that each of us is holding, those primal anxieties that each of us are sort of have welling up deep within ourselves. And you see them play out on the screen, even if in a figurative, stylized, suggestive manner, there's just there's a deeper connection that forms between the audience and what's on screen, and it makes the screams just that much scarier. You know... There's a lot of ways to get elicit a, a scare from people. You can certainly do jump scares. You can do, a, we talked about crazy monster effects, but really that deep, deep, deep fear that you that sticks with you, that makes it a little hard for you to sleep at night, that maybe makes you feel a little uncomfortable, see things moving in the shadows, right? That kind of scare, that kind of fright, that's usually caused because there's some deeper anxiety that that movie was able to tap into. Now, The reason that I've often held that slashers did so well in the 80s in particular was because popularity in serial killers, at least the first wave, right, before Netflix started doing all these documentaries and people started getting obsessed with serial killers in a a weird sort of fetishy way that they are now. But like in terms of like mass news publications and and outlets really sort of naming and, and giving notoriety to these different serial killers was really like in the late mid late 70s and in the early 80s so this is a real these were real experiences that people were afraid of you know son of sam the night stalker uh ted bundy ed Gaines. um you know the list goes on and on and on you know it was only i think um charlie manson and the manson murders of of sharon tate were like the you know 69 right so for people coming of age they grew up in a society where serial killers were a a genuine threat to one's safety and they could come from anywhere and they could look like anyone right so you got to factor that in when was the last time you heard of a serial killer it's just not a thing that's promoted or or publicized much or maybe it's just not a thing that happens i mean we get we get mass shootings which is god awful and tragic but it's, it's it's much different than that sort of and i hate to um i i don't want to make it sound like I'm in any way glorifying it but the golden age of of serial killer was was during a very specific time period of maybe 10 years and so that factors in into why these slasher films did so well the other thing is that a lot of these classic slasher films came out at the height of Reaganism when you had Nancy Reagan going up there saying just say no and you had this sort of um, the sort of turn back to puritanical values of like, don't drink, don't smoke, don't have sex. And on the sex point, you know, you had the AIDS epidemic soon to break out uh, and, and break out. And that had people having anxieties about what, what, you know, the dangers of sex and, and trying to get a handle on what the, the, the true education was and how we could protect ourselves. So you have 
at the same time, there's still the aura of serial killers past, plus these this new wave of Reagan morals um, that sort of culminated into this perfect storm where slasher films not only could exist, but could really thrive. Which is, again, not to take away from any of the skill that's involved in making these films, because, I mean, you had... I mean, some of these films, not all of them, but, a lot, you know, the, the Bane ones that we think about were just excellently crafted films in of themselves in any time period. But, um, you know, there's quite a bunch of those films that are also not really what I would call aces in filmmaking, and they were still resignated. And I think part of why they resignated was because that was, it, it tapped into some primal worry of a whole decade you know, late 70s to late 80s. And um, and some of them did it really successfully. Now, when you talk about slasher films in the 90s, you have films, like I said, you know, like The Scream, and I know what you, would, I know what you did last summer, and The Faculties. And these are called, these are the meta slashers. These are the smart slashers, the self-aware slashers. And those really thrived because by the point that Scream came out, the horror slasher genre had been... As, as capitalism often does, any sort of creative juice that was behind, any sort of creative endeavor behind slasher films, any effort to tell a deeper story than just a dude in a mask hacking people up, had long since been commercialized to these endless, terrible uh, sequels that just... You know, the Halloween series is a great example of a, a, a series that started, you know, the first three installments are so good. The fourth one's okay. And then they just get really, really terrible towards the end there where then there's druids involved and none of it makes sense. And, you know, uh, Jamie just disappeared. And um, so, you know, on Friday the 13th, same thing. Jason went to space. It's just the, 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 the cash cow, the proverbial cash cow had been absolutely drained into a rotting husk. And there was nothing left to mine from that genre except to take the familiarity of it and turn it on its head, uh, subvert people's expectations, wink at the audience a little bit, in fact, use their knowledge to trick them like a magician, right? You think that he's going to pull the rabbit from the hat, but he pulls the rabbit from your ear. And again, Wes Craven, rest in peace, rest in power, leading the charge with Scream. You know, a guy who was at the forefront, you know, he's on the, the Mount Rushmore of slash slasher directors, recognized early that it was time to pivot a little bit. Uh, but again, you can only do that for so long, right? You can only do that trick for so long. And again, unfortunately, I, and ironically, the those movies also kind of fell victim to the very thing that uh, the movies that they were being self-aware about, which was like these endless sequels. So that history lesson aside, do slasher films work today? Well, if we look at the elements on, as to why they worked then, um, I wouldn't say that we're living in an age of puritanical values. I definitely would not say that. I think that um, sexuality in a lot of ways is being far more, I mean, definitely is far more accepted than, than it would, than it would have been in the eighties. New terminology, new uh, lifestyles are being not only recognized, but accepted pretty, you know, so that's tough. It's tough when you're trying to uh, make a movie where if you smoke a cigarette, you're die in a world where a, no one smokes anymore. 
And two, I don't know that that many people really feel like having sex before marriage is that egregious of a sin. Certainly not as much as they would have when there was like the AIDS epidemic in full swing and there was mass confusion and misinformation about what that what, what effect that was going to have over society. Sounds familiar? Um, so that's tough. So I, I don't think that you can lean on that. And then conversely, I'm not sure that you can subvert expectations any better than it's been done already 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So that's another thing to consider. Like, you know, can you really draw from uh, the, the tropes of the different movies that have come before and, and use that knowledge of it to, to trick the audience, to do a little sleight of hand? I don't know. Maybe certainly in the, in the hands of a capable filmmaker, there, there might still be some expectations that can be subverted and, and some, some gold to be mined in those old slasher films of the 80s, maybe even the 90s, right? Maybe you take the, uh, the meta version of horror in the 90s and you subvert that. It's possible. That's a possibility. Very tough. Really tough, though, because I just think that's already been done. Um, so I think what you largely get left with is reboot based on nostalgia. And as we've talked about before with, like, Ghostbusters and some other films, like, I don't, I mean, look at look at Platinum Dune with all the movies that they've remade. I, I th- definitely think your mileage will vary. And I also feel like um, they largely have missed more than they've hit. Um, and, and some of those films were well-crafted, and they certainly all looked real slick. But there's just that, that, that secret sauce, that hidden ingredient that was missing, and, and that was relevancy. And um, look, a great movie is a great movie. If it's enjoyable, it's enjoyable. And I'm not saying these films can't. And I'm looking at the Evil Dead remake as a perfect example. Not that I would ever consider Evil Dead to be a slasher. It's more of a, a demon movie. But, um, you know, there's slasher elements. And I thought, I thought the 2013 version of Evil Dead was so excellent. They found a way to make it feel fresh, you know. And, uh, and, I, and in fact, I felt like what they did was because the original Evil Dead series is so sort of, um, it doesn't take itself terribly serious all the time, that I thought that the the 2013 version that took it all very seriously and really ramped up the the mayhem really made that film super, super enjoyable. Is it a classic on the same level as the original trilogy? Again, I don't know. But um, that's certainly the exception to the rule. And then, well, you could say, well, you just mentioned David Gordon Green and he rebooted Halloween. So how how does that work? Is it still relevant today? And I think it was. And I think that um, part of why the new Halloween movie worked so well is because the, the crux of what makes that film so good is their handling of Jamie Lee Curtis's character and her performance because she plays it. She plays it as well as and in very derivative of and certainly reminiscent of linda hamilton in terminator 2 like if you're ever looking for a way like a the blueprint to reboot a franchise uh they didn't erase the original it's a sequel albeit it's a sequel that erases all the bad sequels and it uh it basically kind of lifted some influences from terminator 2 whereas in terminator 1 linda hamilton's character is very much the final girl, the victim, right? Whereas in T2, she's a badass Terminator killing machine who is handling her PTSD, her trauma by 
toughening her exterior, building an exoskeleton. And I think Jamie Lee Curtis did a lot of the same, took a lot of the same approach to her portrayal of her character and um, did so in a way that had that same gruff, tough exterior, but there was also a lot of vulnerability, prone to alcoholism, paranoia, no one believes her. Those are things that I think that people can recognize. In a lot of ways, Laurie Strode, in a lot of ways, is um, is almost based like a, a soldier who comes back from, from war, right? Suffering from PTSD and, and having to protect her family from this villain. It's almost... Um, you know, another another uh, film that it, it probably even even uh, uh, maybe subconsciously or non-intentionally drew influence from was First Blood. You know, a soldier who's gone through trauma who comes back and has to deal with with daily violence, and, you know, circling her. So but again, that that really works because you took a final girl and you've aged her, you know, what is it, 30, 40 years and you have a capable actress who's willing to. Who, to step into those shoes again and bring something really fresh and, and very honest and very true to the character. Can you do that with a brand new film? I don't know. I don't know if that's really possible. I don't know if it's as super relevant today as it would be. You, What you might at best hope for is just a fun flick that's enjoyable, but maybe not terribly memorable. So what makes, what makes then a horror film memorable and what kind of film can be made in this new decade that we're approaching on that can work today like slasher films worked in the 80s. Well, we're living in a post-Trump era and people have some pretty divisive opinions as to what that means. For some people, it's the best. America is great again. And for other people, it's the worst times we've ever lived in. And, um, And maybe it's somewhere in between. Regardless of it, there is very little middle ground when it comes to this age that we're living in. And so one of the things that I think that filmmakers, uh, I'd, I'd like to see filmmakers and I'd like to implore filmmakers to explore more of is this idea of the broken social contract, right? For those of you who maybe are unaware of it or you're like, oh God, I remember learning about that in high school. Why are we talking about that again? Well, if you remember old, our friend, Mr. John Locke, the social contract is a contract between the people and government or kings or leaders, right? In which we give power as a collective people to government and they in turn protect our rights. And if they instead misuse their power, then we are obligated to replace or overthrow said kingdom. Now, for a lot of people who are living in this post-Trump world, they're feeling like that social contract has been broken on the part of this ruler that at least half of the nation voted for. So what does that mean? That's just, that's a real anxiety that people are feeling right now. Um, in a few short months, we're going to find out whether it's four more years of Trump or four years of someone else. And again, your, your opinions on whether or not that's good or bad will probably vary wildly, but there's something there. And I thought, and I've said this before on the show, and I just want to reiterate that I thought that uh, the best season since like the first two seasons of American Horror Story was season eight, which was Colt, which did a really great job of, at least for a good chunk of the season before they go off the rails like they normally do, of highlighting political anxiety in America. Uh, so, again, does that work in the world of genre- slasher? I don't know. 
But I definitely think that the distrust that people have in the government uh, is definitely something that can that is still worthy of exploiting. And I know the purge has done it, and I know there's other examples. But uh, I mean, it's 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 still very very heightened right now. So I don't think that it's any it's it's a it's a genre or a theme that has been mined too much. I think there's still a lot of um, feeling there and fear and anxiety of the that we as a as a people have lost our control, our ability to be an active participant in the social contract, and that uh, we are fearful of the incompetence, if not the outright violence and control of the government that we've empowered. So that's one thing. That's one thing that you could tap into to make a great horror film that is relevant today and that will stand the test of time beyond just simply cool cool graphics or violence or special effects. The other thing, and this sort of splinters off of sort of this divisive world that we're living in, and there is an increased uh, tribalism that has taken over this nation, uh, I think that there's a very valid um, fear of your neighbor, right? How many times have you been on social media where you've had to post or you find yourself compelled to post? If you guys think X, Y, and Z, just unfollow me now, right? We've all said that, or we've known people who have said that, or certainly thought it, right? Um, people who you thought were your friends, you might viciously disagree with. And in some way, you might lose friendships over the political landscape and your opinion of all the part, all the different people involved, right? All the, all the personalities and the parties involved in this political landscape has created this mass division that we haven't seen in some time. So where, you know, you know, there have been movies in the past where like you're afraid of your neighbors, you're afraid of the people who live in your neighborhood. I mean, again, this is something a little bit of the, what the purge kind of, deals with but you know children of the corn evasion of the body snatchers uh, the stepford wives movies in the past if you want to draw like a parallel to an anxiety that's very relevant today like do you know the real intentions of the people who were seemingly your friends your neighbors your loved ones I, a movie a, a current movie that that tackled that extremely well was get out in so much that they they took uh, the old, you know, like in the 70s, you saw a lot of that fear of the r- rural fear. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of course, leading the charge of that, right? Uh, wherein, wherein movies were always sort of designed around city folk going to the country and coming across violent hillbillies. And I feel like what Get Out did was they took that model and they turned it on its head, right? It. it Maybe like in a similar way that sort of the Scream series did to the old slasher movies of the 80s. Instead of it being like this this rural hillbilly, you know, um, the Sawyers, right? Cutting up, making lampshades out of skin and, and furniture out of bones. Instead, you had this Weebly Parker, neo-lib family talking about how Obama being elected was the best thing in their life. Turns out to be these psychopaths. And I thought that was a really cool role reversal. I thought it was very, very smart. I thought it was a it was a unique way to subvert your expectation. Um, use what you think you're comfortable with, and then reveal, you know, maybe some nefarious intention. Um, I think that there's still an opportunity to mine this sort of real anxiety that people are feeling, like that they don't really know or can trust the people around them that 
their buddy, their neighbor, their parents may have such a vastly different political outlook than you to the point of it being dangerous. And I think that's very relevant. And I think that that is something that could absolutely be exploited further and with further nuance. Um, the other thing, of course, that we could talk about, talking about sort of, um, you know, the fear of, of your neighbor is, is fear in a different way, which is isolation. And uh, we're all in quarantine right now. And many of us may fear our neighbors for a totally different, in a totally different way, right? Not because we're afraid of what their political leanings might be or what they're thinking about us as a person as they see us walk by, but rather that we physically have fear of getting too close, right? Whereas uh, in, in the sort of, uh, in, in the theme of tribalism, it's really more of a fear that, that your neighbor or the person that you know is going to have a different ideological viewpoint than you. In this instance, in a similar but different way, there's a physical fear that people are feeling. I know when I go walking my dog down the street, if I see someone walking too close or without a mask, there's a, there's a part of me that recoils and that wants to move away from them. Even though we, probably most of us, myself, like most of us out there, probably crave and miss sort of uh, intimacy and, and social connection, there's also that part of us that maybe fear physical contact, physical nearness. I think that would be very valid. And not to not to exploit it, right? Don't be like full moon and just put out some schlocky zombie film and slap COVID on it and call it a day. Like really delve in to the philosophies and the ideas of what isolation can do to us. Like, you know, think about The Shining, which won our, our tournament for the greatest horror movie of all time. Totally hits on the themes of isolation. Like what, what, what can being alone absent of the distractions of the normal world what can that do to our psyche and what can a a physical repulsion of being a what and what can a repulsion of being physically near someone do to our psyche that's not really something that i've ter- i've seen terribly explored usually when people try to tackle um quarantine or or virus movies they focus on the virus right and they focus on solving curing the virus but in the same way that the first purge really dealt with classism in the guys, and, and frankly, for that matter, us, at least the first act of us, you know, use these deeper themes under the guise of like a home invasion film. I definitely think that if you're looking to make a relevant modern horror movie that is rooted in 2020, I think the ideas of isolationism and what that does on the human psyche and at what cost we go to protect ourselves physically what that can do for us and what that what that means for us in the in the in the world at large i think there's a lot of scares that can be drawn from that i definitely think that that's that can take people to some really dark places that they maybe don't totally want to um want to explore within themselves now this next one is sort of a, a two-parter. Uh, they're, they're, they are, they are um, opposite sides of the same coin. And again, depending on what your political outlook might be, you might be more inclined to be more fearful of one or the other. And that is SJW fear and incel fear. It's all the same, same. It's this fear that of, of, the, of the other side that you don't understand. 
Whereas earlier I was more talking on a global sort of existential sense of dread of feeling like the social contract has been broken. Um, and maybe, maybe even the fear of, of your neighbor in terms of like being someone who smiles on the outside, but deep down has dark, you know, has a, a completely opposite viewpoint on life to, to your own detriment. This is more fearing the unknown, right? Fearing the faceless. You see people online on Twitter all the time talking about the incels, right? Joker is going to inspire incel violence. Or you see on the opposite side of the aisle, the those SJWs, they're uh, they're they're canceling people left and right. Or, you know, try, it's a, it's a guilty before proven innocent, right? Things of this nature. I think there's an opportunity to really explore this irrational fear, right? This fear of the vast minority of people out there, the fr- fear of the fringe, as it will, as it would be, and um, and you know, there's it, it's dangerous, right? Because you can fall into, you can easily fall into this idea that uh, of tropes, right? These incels being the the quote unquote white male rage, and uh, and or SJWs being soy boys. I I implore you to think more deeply if this is if this is a theme that your core that your horror film that you're currently writing while you're in quarantine is wanting to explore tap the brakes just a little bit and think to yourself is there a way to exploit this fear either which way or or maybe with both simultaneously in a way that doesn't fall victim to the very trappings of cliche and of assumption and of stereotype it's it's very difficult. It's a super nuanced thing to to try to tackle because I think that depending on people's point of view, they feel like, um, well, you know, they may feel like, well, you can't do a movie where the villain, for lack of a better term, is an SJW or whatever you want to call it, uh, because they're the good guys. Or conversely, um, you know, people. There may be people who feel like the the term incel is being cast upon a a generalized group of individuals, and making them the bad guy doesn't feel like it's very fair. So, how can you take these two things that these two anxieties that are at direct odds with one another, but are in fact, in many ways, the same anxiety? It's the fear of the faceless troll. How can you use that? anxiety and fear to make a modern story that is relevant to 2020 and that is where i feel like you have the closest option to making a slasher film that faceless troll online whether it be an sjw quote-unquote or a quote-unquote you know that that unknown person that you irrationally hate based on what you perceive that is something that i think would be super cool to see explored and I think in the hands of some really intelligent filmmakers, it could be done very well. And maybe in that, you could bring back the slasher genre. Now, this, I guess I should have mentioned this a little bit. This all kind of ties in together with a little bit of the other themes I've been talking about, right? Which is um, the depravity of humanity stripped of its safety nets. That's my little note that I made to myself, right? And what do I mean by that? Right now, for most of us, we're getting by. We're getting by um, in this quarantine the best that we can. And it's it's probably having an internal uh, effect on us more than an external. Like There's no riots is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. There's no looting that I'm aware of that's happening on any 
widespread uh, in any widespread manner. I mean, there's some there's some really dopey protests that are going on for people who who don't want to go back to real life. They want to go back to having other people slave for them while they consume their Applebee's and and get their two hundred dollar haircuts, um, their Karen haircuts, right? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what happens when, as a society, that we feel that things have gotten so bad that we feel completely stripped down to our barest of vulnerabilities. And not just, like as I mentioned earlier, like when, we're, when I was talking about isolation, not so much in an uh, internal way, right? Like less of an internal struggle, less of the shining or secret window, and more of what, what evil can man have or what depravity can man have when you strip away all semblances of safety. Zombie films oftentimes tackle a theme of this vein, but they use zombies, right? Don't use zombies because we've seen it and it's like the easiest thing to imagine. There's a virus that breaks out and now we're all zombies. Like don't, if you're writing that right now, you better be fucking amazing because there's a lot of people doing that right this moment. But I'll give you guys a little story. One time me and my buddy Jason, who is a, has an excellent political podcast called the regrettable century. We were taking a walk down what's called skid row in Los Angeles and there are about 40,000 homeless people in the greater Los Angeles area. And if you go to a particular area in downtown, it looks like on a several block radius, like a third world country. But um, if you walk just one block over, like one block diagonal, you walk into what's called the Arts District, which is where a bunch of bougie craft beer uh, restaurants, $15 burgers are sold, uh, video game shops that that serve you know top shelf alcohol like one block away from from utter and total disparity and poverty is excess and I've often wondered what stops the people living on Skid Row from just walking a block over and seizing the excess from the very people whom they might perceive as the reason that they're in abject poverty. This is something that is a real, like I, I'm old enough to remember the LA riots, but I was living in Texas at the time. But I, I certainly think that this is an anxiety that people may still fear that if you leave us in quarantine long enough, that man will become animalistic and that, um, and that you may find yourself in a scenario where, the rules are off. All, all, all rules are, are, all bets are off. And so maybe there's a culmination here where if you've stripped us of all the things that we previously held safe, if you make us poor enough, what can we do? And, and if you really want to make your characters complex, is it really depravity or is it justifiable, uh, a justifiable reaction to a system that has failed us. Uh, this is a this is a central theme that you might have recognized, say, like in Joker. But I think that it can be more aptly uh, in, uh, applied to this sort of COVID period that we're living in. You know, imagine a world where this COVID lasts another year or two years and people fall further and further into poverty and despair. What are they capable of? What is man capable of? And is it justifiable or not? Another film that tackled it on in some way was George A. Romero's Land of the Dead. So I'm hopeful 
that there are people using this time right now to think about some of these things creatively and maybe trying to find a way to apply some of these to the next generation of horror movie that is going to be memorable, that is going to be relevant, that is going to be a classic. And I hope that, you know, as many talented people are out there in the world, some of you guys may be inspired to be a part of that. I think horror, maybe more than, maybe outside of maybe uh, sci-fi, is the most important genre to represent the temperature of whatever whatever era age that it was made uh, maybe i mean certainly in modern history more than any other in my opinion more than any other medium for art creation horror movies and to a lesser degree sci-fi really take the temperature of the era and so it's incumbent upon us as creative filmmakers and writers and directors and podcasters and VR specialists and sculptors and photographers. It's up to us. If we want to be a part of this new rooted horror that's going to define the 2020s, which have started real bad, right? It's important to us to recognize the anxieties that people are feeling today and find a way to use those anxieties to get that safe, that safe space scare. Oftentimes through horror, it's how we confront the things that we're that we're anxious of and that we're fearful of. In a lot of ways, it's like confronting those fears. And in that way, horror movies do a service to us as a society um, because we don't actually have to face a killer or serial killer in order to get over that anxiety of them. We just need to watch 15 fucking Friday the 13th sequels. And then we no longer have fear of serial killers. So that's... That's my take on it. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I hope you guys... Uh, I, I'm curious to see what you guys think are sort of relevant anxieties of the 2020s that... Um, and I you know they just started and I know a lot of these sort of really have been like the last four years. But I think the last two years in particular have gone extremely bad. And and then you, you toss in COVID at the top of 2020 and I think what, what you have is a cocktail of uh, anxieties that the society is downing by the gallon so we'll see we'll see if any of these sort of make it to the the big screen and whether or not these lead to the next great batch of horror films and with that i think we'll toss it to we have one audience question which we uh matt and i answered on the podcast but um again we lost so much of that we we got plagues upon our podcast that would make the pharaohs of egypt think that they had a walk in the park so i'm going to answer this question now for all of you guys and uh well next week we'll have new questions Questions from the Joel Rimby asks, why were the people involved with the making of the movies Terminator and Terminator 2 allow so many glaring internal inconsistencies to get through to the final production? You know, the reality of it is, is that the first Terminator movie is a movie, and I don't want to talk bad about Skynet because it, it fucked up our last podcast when we did, so I'm going to I'm going to attempt to tackle this with the slightest bit more understanding. Um, Terminator 1 is a self-contained film. has a very clear message, and it's very closed. And it's essentially that, that the future is set, and that the very actions that we take to try to avoid the future, in fact, cause the future, and we're all stuck in an endless loop that has been predetermined no matter what we do. So how do you make a sequel to that? Well, what they... What James Cameron opted to do was just say, nah, I was just kidding on that. And the future is malleable. 
And um, and the rea- and and to be honest, every Terminator film that comes out further messes with that central theme uh, of of what fate means. You know, if the if the original Terminator movie has the opinion that fate is a closed loop, then Terminator Two begs the question that maybe the future is not set, that uh, maybe it is possibly changeable. It's a film that ends with a message of hope. Is it wildly inconsistent from the theme of the first movie? Yes, absolutely is. But it's one of those movies that was so well-crafted and so good that I think a lot of people overlook that uh, intentionally because they don't want to sully an otherwise near-perfect film. I think that's why the sequels don't get that same pass because as they, like for example, Terminator 3 then tries to loop back around and bridge the gap between the two philosophies and say, well, the future is a closed loop, but the details can be changed and that loop may shrink, may expand or contrast depending on what you've done to adjust the details, right? Like it's eventually going to end up in the same spot but you maybe through your actions can speed it up, can delay it, can alter it in some ways. But at the end of the day, the main points are going to continue. Uh, and because that movie was not so good, even though I think that's a very clever way to try to bridge what you describe as wild inconsistencies between the first two Terminator movies, which is not something that a movie should have to take on. Um, it, it, was, it, it inherited that paradox and I think they did the best job that they could with explaining it. The problem is so much of the rest of the film fails that that effort to solve the paradox kind of becomes inconsequential to the fact that the movie's just dopey. You know, too, too, it, it attempted to do the Scream to give the Terminator franchise the Scream treatment without any of the cleverness or awareness that the Scream movies had and I think part of it is because Wes Craven was, again, he he helped invent the genre. So he, better than anyone else, knew how to deconstruct it. I don't think that um, any, of the subsequent, any of the subsequent Terminator directors had that ability. Now, maybe if James Cameron came back to the franchise as a director, not just as a producer, but was really involved, maybe he would have been able to do so. Um, but he has not as of yet. And, um, and so, and it may, it just, frankly, it may be too, too far gone at this point to do so. I don't know, but to answer your question, Joel, the first movie made a shit ton. Uh, the first movie was so awesome. And Arnold by this point had become such a movie star that not making a sequel seemed ridiculous. And the only way for James Cameron to get out of it was to, um, well, was to just basically change his mind. And there you are. I guess, is, is Sarah Connor a reliable narrator? Do you believe that when she says the future is not set at the end of Terminator 2, that she's telling the truth or just what she wants to believe? I mean, Terminator 3 would suggest that it is, was as true to her as she knew at the time, but that she was incorrect and that she there, therefore, through no fault of her own, is an unreliable narrator. Uh, it's up for you to determine because... The franchise to that point, to the first two movies, leaves gives you two competing philosophies on fate. So they make you think, and they give you the opportunity to choose which one you believe. And I guess if you follow the rest of the series, it gives you some answer whether or not it's satisfactory or otherwise. But uh, that's the answer. 
Arnold was a big star, so they had to make a second one. And thankfully they did because it's Terminator 2 is awesome. I mean, I'm shocked it didn't win the tournament for the greatest action movie of all time. And we've been getting a series of Terminator-related questions. So clearly it's got its fan base. And it's a near-perfect movie as far as action is concerned. It's just, you know, I mean, now, did James Cameron have to contradict himself? Eh, probably not, but he did. And we're all the more lucky for it. So that's my answer to that, Joel. I hope uh, that wasn't too circular for you. And for everyone out there in Radioland, I apologize there won't be a YouTube video. Uh, I thought about recording myself in the flesh. But it, again, we're going through a heat wave in Los, in Los Angeles. And uh, I'm not wearing pants. I'm just kidding. I hope that you guys can tell how desperately I need Matt as a co-host. So it's way more entertaining when there's someone to bounce ideas off of. But such is life. And we do the best we can because that's all that we can do. So from me and, well, me, and from you guys, and from Danny Trejo's Cerveza, I want to wish you guys a good week. I hope you guys are being safe. I hope you guys are being creative. I want to I do a, a quick quote from Henry Rollins to see us out that I think is especially relevant in talking about using some of these, using this time that we're in to create art, meaningful art, timely art, right? Relevant art. There's no such thing as spare time, no such thing as free time, no such thing as downtime. All you've got is lifetime. Go. And with that, I bid you farewell and adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Hans Solo Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify.